The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. A few months ago, Tom Rayner published a post called Six Ways Millennial Are Shaping the Church. And it was a post that actually Jason sent to me. Jason, where are you? Thanks for sending it to me, buddy. I appreciate it. Six ways millennials are shaping the church. If you don't know what a millennial is, a millennial is a person born between 1980 and 2000, and they are currently the largest generation in America. And it starts out with this statistic. He says, no more, no more than 20% of millennial Christians attend church one time a month or more. This means 80% of people born between 1980 and 2000 that would consider themselves Christians do not attend church more than once a month. There was a book published by a famous Christian author who will remain nameless who says this, whether you become a revolutionary, talking about a radical sold-out Christian, whether you become a revolutionary immersed in minimally involved in, or completely disassociated from a local church is irrelevant to me and within boundaries to God. He goes on to say, if we place all our hope in the local church, it is a misplaced hope. Many well-intentioned pastors promote this perspective by proclaiming the local church is the hope of the world. The trouble is, This sediment is not biblical. Jesus and Jesus alone is the hope of the world. If the local church is the hope of the world, then the world has no hope. It is true that Jesus and Jesus alone is the hope of the world. But the question is, who does Jesus use in this world to bring forth his hope? As you look at the sediment of, this, of what this author says and even the statistics on millennials who call themselves Christians but don't come to church, you get sort of this sediment that the church is optional, that the church is outdated, that the church is insignificant, that the church is really no different than Boy Scouts or the Rotary Club or any other charitable contribution or organization. But the question I have, is the church really important? Have any of you ever had a conversation or been that person who says, you know what, I don't really need to go to church. I can just have my Bible, go in the woods, and that is my sanctuary. And there I worship Jesus. That is my church. The church has time, as time has progressed, has become more and more devalued in our culture. And so let me ask you this question. What is your view of the church? What would your actions say are your view of the church? What would your words say are your view of the church? What would your heart communicate is your view of the church? What is your view of the church? Second question. Are you willing to submit your view of the church to Christ's view of the church? Because to be honest, the value of the church isn't made up collectively of short-sighted people, but of a loving and gracious Savior. 
As we look at the church today, I want to look at the question, how does Jesus view the church? If you would please turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 983. Children's Bible, it is page 1456. I shared with you last week that we are in the middle of a mini-series in the book of Colossians. We are looking at what is called the Christological Hymn. Last week we looked and we saw how it proclaims Jesus' preeminence over creation. This week we are going to look and see how that scope is narrowed and how Christ is preeminent over his special creation, his new creation, the church. And then next week, Chad is going to share with us how Christ is preeminent over our salvation. So today we are going to focus on verses 18 through 20. But I want to start in verse 15 just so we can get the context of this hymn, so we can start at the beginning of the song. So let's look together. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that's what we looked at last week. Now let's look and see the passage we're looking at today. Verse 18. And he, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word, today. And we study the church and we try to understand the church from your perspective. God, pray that you would, you would change our understanding and our view and our perspective of the church in whatever way is faulty, God. Grow us in your vision of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many times in songs, there is artistic repetition going on here. And so I'm simply going to take the outline that we had from last week, and I'm just going to replace the word creation with the word church. And so last week, we saw that Jesus is the creator of all creation. This week, we're going to talk about how Jesus is the creator of the church. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the sustainer of all creation. This week, we're going to talk about how Jesus is the sustainer of the church. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is the purpose of all creation. And this week, we're going to talk about how Jesus is the purpose of the church. Let's start with that first point. Jesus is the creator of the church. Verse 18, second half, says this. He, Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. One of the questions we have to ask as we look at this topic of the church is, what is the church? Well, if you go back to the original language and you look at the Greek, the term used here is the term ekklesia, which literally means an assembly of people. And so the church is not a building, right? It is not a steeple, it is a people, however that goes. The church is a group of people assembled 
together. And it is a very particular group, a very well-defined group. The church is not defined by a group of people that are necessarily moral or necessarily obedient or necessarily religious. What defines the people of God as a church of God is that they are a living people, a people who were once dead but have now been made alive. In a sense, what makes someone a part of the church is not what you have done and not what you have thought and not what you have believed, but what God has done upon you and how he has changed your identity from dead to living, from sinner to saint. There's a beautiful and powerful prophecy written in the Old Testament that talks about how the people of God were once dead and have become alive. It's found in Ezekiel 37 and is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And it is a prophecy of the church that is to come. It starts out with the Lord guiding Ezekiel into a valley of dry, dead, lifeless bones. And God says, can these bones come alive? And Ezekiel kind of says, come on, God, you know they can't come alive. And then God says, prophesy over these dry, dead bones. Prophesy life into them. And then this is what happens, okay? And this is you if you are in Christ. This is the church today. Ezekiel 37, verse 7. You can follow along on the screen. It is a a longer passage, but it is beautiful. Ezekiel says this, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, There were sinews on them, which are ligaments and tendons. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, and he commanded me, And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Can you picture this? Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, which today is the church. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. And so what we see in this beautiful prophecy of Ezekiel is that although the people of God have deadened in their spirits as they have turned away from God, God promises a new people, a covenant community in which he will make dead people alive. Just as he breathed life into Adam, he will breathe life into his church through his Holy Spirit. He says, I have spoken and I will do it. Has God done it? Indeed, he has. When we look at Ephesians chapter 1, and by the way, we're going to bounce around a lot in Scripture today, and a lot of it will be on the screen. But in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, speaking to the church, speaking to the Christians, and you were dead. Not sick, but dead. 
and the trespasses and sins. The reality is that all of us were spiritually stillborn at birth. Nothing inside of us wanted to worship God. None of us, nothing inside us had a longing for God. None of, nothing inside of us had the ability to honor and glorify God. We were spiritually dead. And then it gets to verse 4 and it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so what is the church? The church isn't primarily a group of people that ascribe to a certain doctrine, although we do that in the creeds. According to Paul, the church is an assembly of dead people that have been made alive. That is the church. Now, how was that church created? How did Jesus create that church? How did Jesus make dead people alive? That is quite a trick, isn't it? Verse 18 again, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was God in the flesh, born a man, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. But then after three days, he conquered death and he raised from the grave and he ascended bodily into heaven. If you're biblically astute, you might say, well, what about Lazarus? Wasn't Lazarus the first to raise from the dead? Wasn't he the firstborn from the dead? You see, there is a monumentous difference between the raising of Lazarus and the raising of Jesus. You see, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he died again. But when Christ was raised to new life, Jesus died no more. You see, Lazarus temporarily conquered death, but Jesus finally conquered death. Once and for all, never to be subject to death again. And Jesus didn't only finally conquer death, Jesus also fully conquered death. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. That's what we celebrate on Easter, that the grave is empty, that Christ bodily ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning over all of creation and over his church. For the saints that have died, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, upon their death, they are in the presence of God. They are in heaven with God spiritually. Their spirits are, but their bodies remain in the ground. And they await a full resurrection when Christ returns. And so you see, when we say that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, we say that because he has conquered death finally and fully. And this is our hope. This is our hope that in Christ, we too conquer and will conquer death finally and fully for all eternity. When we look at 1 Corinthians 15, we see that this hope of the resurrection is so fundamental to our Christian belief. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, being Adam, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. Our hope for resurrection in this life now and for all eternity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 talked about it. At the end of verse 5, it said that we are made alive together 
with Christ. Not independent of Christ, but together with Christ. As you look on in this letter to the Colossians in chapter 2, it says that you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ. You see, the church, in a way, are spiritual astronauts. You know, an astronaut's desire is to go up to outer space, right? To go up to the heavens. And to get up there, they don't just start flapping their arms really hard, you know, hoping to get up there. No, they have to be in the shuttle, right? They, 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 the only reason they get up to the heavens is if they go with the shuttle because they're found in the shuttle. The only way that we have new life is not by working really hard, but to be found in Christ. Because as Christ was raised from the dead, if we are found in him, we are raised with him to newness of life. So the church is the assembly of those who share the risen life of Jesus Christ. Those who were once dead in their sins, but made alive together in Christ. So Christ created the church. Christ is also the sustainer of the church. You know, it's interesting how we could date the church and talk about how old it is. Some people, you could say, would say it's 2,000 years old. It goes back to, the, to, to Jesus and maybe the, the proclamation of Peter or, or, or Pentecost. And so the church is 2,000 years old. Others would say, no, no, the church is 4,000 years old. This is what I would think, that, or, or older. It goes back to when God called Abraham out and made a people for himself. Some would say it goes even back to the fall in which God proclaimed the gospel in Genesis 3.15, declaring that he was going to create for himself a redeemed people. No matter how old you think the church is or how old you believe the church to be, the reality is, is that from the very beginning, humanity has always done its best to disrupt the church, to kill the church, to end the church. You know, we were just studying in the book of Genesis over the past few years, And as you looked at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people that were pinnacles in our faith, these were men who were adulterers, blasphemers. These were men who were conniving and deceptive. These were men who were were polygamists, men who were cowards. They did their best to end the church from the very beginning. You move on to the New Testament. The New Testament churches are full of heresy. Matter of fact, that's why most of the New Testament is written, is to confront heresy in the church. You move on in history, and you see that the church is filled with with leaders in the church that wielded their leadership for their own personal selfish gain. Hundreds and thousands of people have been killed in the name of Jesus Christ throughout the Crusades, throughout the Reformation, throughout other parts of history. The church is an absolute mess, if you look historically. It's not full of perfect people, but very messy, greedy, selfish people. And you look at this and you say, how could the church still be in existence? And the answer is because the church has a very good leader. The church has a perfect leader. We read that Christ is head of the church his body. Jesus, as the head of his church, is sustaining the church, both by leading it and by nurturing it. I want to touch on those two things very quickly. First off, Jesus is leading the church. Just yesterday, a friend told me 
uh, how busy he was. He said, I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off. I've never actually seen a chicken with its head cut off. Have any of you seen a chicken with its head cut off? I bet it is quite an experience. I am jealous. But all of us kind of can imagine what a chicken with its head cut off looks like, right? It's, it's, it's a chicken without direction, without guidance, without any leadership. It's just going around like this, right? Jesus Christ, as the head of our church, leads the church. Without the head of our church, we have no leadership. We have no direction. We have no guidance. We run around like a chicken with his head cut off. Ephesians 1.20 talks about it. It says that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The right hand is a position of power and authority. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the head of the church. If he has cut off the church, the church wanders aimlessly. It does not have direction. It does not have a goal. It does not have guidance. You know, we live in an age where the preacher or the pope is held up as this celebrity in many situations. And they're given a blank checkbook and they're given really, uh, uh, they're given rule to do whatever they want. As long as the church grows, the pastor can do whatever they want. And many of you have come here because you have been hurt by that understanding of the pastor or of the priest. That, that they can do no wrong. That they get to do whatever they want. You know, I've said it time and time again, and I will say it again. There is only one good king. His name is Jesus. The rest of us need accountability. The rest of us need checks and balances. You know, to be honest, I'm so glad to be Presbyterian because I don't trust myself. I need elders that are in positions of authority over me. And that's what we have. There are, there are plenty of things, believe it or not, there are plenty of things in this church that I would do differently. But I'm not the head of the church. Our form of government sets it up so that only Christ is head of the church. As a matter of fact, if you look at our book of church order, which is a, a, a yawn to read, to be honest, but if you look at it, it starts out with this. Who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ, period. That's it. We are not head of the church. Christ is head of the church. There's only one good king, and it is Jesus. And he is leading the church. He is heading the church. He is sustaining the church through his leadership. He's also sustaining the church by nurturing the church. Next chapter in Colossians 2, verse 19, we learn that the head, Jesus, is from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Jesus sustains his church by nourishing his church. He nourishes the church through the means of grace. These are the channels in which God normally gives grace to his people, to his saints. The means of grace include things like the word of God, especially the preached word of God. It includes the sacraments. It includes prayer. And when we gather together on Sunday mornings, the reason we gather together is to be nourished by the living God. I never grew up a country boy, and I sure wish I could have seen a chicken with its head cut off. 
But I'm guessing that a chicken with its head cut off doesn't run around forever, right? How long does it last? I don't, can someone tell me? 45 seconds, okay. And then what happens? What? It dies? It tips over. It tips over. That's a nice way of putting it. It tips over. It it goes aimlessly for 45 minutes and then it dies, right? Why? Because the body lacks the nutrients. What did I say? Minutes? Yeah. I was wondering why people were giggling. All right. 45 seconds, I stand corrected. Yeah. Big chicken goes 45 minutes. But eventually what happens? It tips over, right? It dies. Why? Because it's no longer getting the nutrients from the head that it needs. It doesn't get oxygen, right? doesn't get water. doesn't get food. It dies. Without the head... Jesus Christ, there is no nourishment to the church. And so Christ sustains his church by leading his church, by nourishing his church. He not only sustains it now, but he also sustains it for, for forever. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you know what the term reconcile means? You probably use it. To reconcile means to bring a relationship back into harmony, to bring peace back into a relationship, to bring order back into a relationship. When Paul says that through Christ, I'm sorry, through Christ, he reconciled to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, what this doesn't mean is that every single person in all of creation will be saved. It doesn't mean that Satan will be saved and the demons will be saved and that unbelievers will be saved. We know it doesn't mean this because there are several places throughout the rest of Paul's writing and the rest of scripture where there are many people who their eternal destiny is not reconciliation with God. But what this is telling us is that there is a universal reconciliation in which God rights all of the wrongs and put things back in order. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it not only brought misery and destruction upon mankind, but it also brought disarray and decay on the whole created order. We read of this in Romans chapter 8. I told you we have a lot of Bible verses today. Romans chapter 8 says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, the whole creation, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until Now, verse 20 in Colossians 1 tells us that every person, that not every person in heaven and earth will be reconciled to God, but there will be a reconciled creation. That there will be a return to Eden. That there will once again be harmony and peace in creation. And that this is the future of the church. You know, I never noticed this, but you know, during Christmas time, we sing the song Joy to the World. And maybe you can think about this when we sing the song this Christmas. But in, in that song Joy to the World, the majority of it 
the majority of the people singing joy to the world are things. It, it's not people. It's creation. Creation is singing joy to the world, the Savior's come. It says things like this, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Fields and floods, rocks and hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow, far as the curse is found. You see, Christ's redemption of creation is not limited to people. It is universal in its scope. There will be a new heavens and a new earth with a new people, God's church. And there will be order and there will be harmony and there will be reconciliation. And this is the future of the church. And it is assured it will happen. If we made it this far, let's be honest, with all the corruption, we're going to make it to the end. And it's not because of us, but it's because Christ sustains his church. That is the promise that we have from the word of God. And so Jesus is the creator of the church. He is the sustainer of the church. Finally, Jesus is the purpose of the church. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Because Jesus is the fullness of God in the flesh. Because Jesus created the church by being the firstborn from the dead. Because Jesus sustains the church by leading her and nourishing her and protecting her. Because of these things, making Jesus preeminent in the church must be the purpose of the church. Making Jesus number one in the church must be the purpose of the church. And so how do we make Christ preeminent in the church here at Jacob's Well and in the church universal? Well, one way is by making Christ preeminent in our preaching and in our teaching. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 says this. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquent or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was one time Saul. He grew up in a Jewish home. He was familiar with the Old Testament. He knew many, many things. And yet he said, this is what I proclaim to you in all things, Christ and him crucified. As we see Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus, and he's talking to the gentlemen that are with him. And we learn that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What we learn is that in all of the Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament, everything points to Jesus. Just like all roads lead to Rome, all scripture points to Jesus. That's why one of the emphasis here at Jacob's Well is gospel-centered preaching because we believe everything points to Christ. And so for Christ to be preeminent in our church, he must be preeminent in our preaching and our teaching, including community groups and small groups and things of that nature. But Christ must also be preeminent in our theology. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus is the word become flesh. And so as we look at the scriptures, it must be preeminent in our theology. The scriptures must be our ultimate authority of truth. We must submit our lives and our doctrine to the word of God. 
2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We also emphasize expository preaching here. I'm not saying Jake's will has it perfect. I'm just telling you why are these our emphasis. It's because the word of God stands in authority over us because Jesus is the word who became flesh and he speaks through his message to us and he tells us what is right and what is true. For Christ to be preeminent in our church, Christ must be preeminent in our preaching, in our teaching, in our theology, in our understanding of truth. But that's not enough. Christ must also, and first most, be preeminent in our hearts. In Revelation chapter 2, God is talking to the Ephesians. And he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have preserved and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. This is all very, very good stuff. They defended the truth. They persevered. They have endured for the name of Jesus. And then he says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Could this be true of you? Could this be true of me? Could this be true of our church? That Jesus is prominent in our life. He's prominent. We work hard for him. We persevere for him. We don't tolerate wickedness. We, we push out false teaching. We endure hardship for him. He is prominent in our life, but he is not prominent. Pre, I'm sorry, he is prominent in our life, but he is not preeminent. We have forsaken our first love. Have you forgotten what this is all for? Have you forgotten who this is all for? Have you obeyed Jesus without affection for Jesus? Jesus is to be preeminent in our church. And for him to be preeminent in our church, he must first be preeminent in our hearts. Making Christ preeminent in our teaching and in our theology and our hearts and lives is easier said than done. There are a million decisions a day in which we are called to make Christ preeminent in our lives. Let me just give you one example from this past week. This past week, um, on two different occasions, I had people communicate with me, hey, Pastor Dan, um, you know, we're here. Uh, we're thankful for Jake as well, but we, we need to go elsewhere. We need to find another church. Um, there are some theological differences that we don't line up on with you, and we need to go someplace else. And and it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. That's not the point of this story. But when I hear someone come to me and say, you know what, we need to leave the church because, you know, your theology is uh, offensive um, to maybe culture or maybe they understand Scripture differently. Here's where my heart goes. My heart says, man, maybe we should change our theology. Maybe we should make it more conducive to, you know, culture because there's a lot of offensive things that are said in the Scriptures. Maybe, maybe we need to Maybe we need to adjust. Maybe we need to make, make our understanding of Scripture more palatable, not so offensive to people. And then I have a good friend remind me, Dan, just be faithful to God. That's all you're called to do is to be faithful. You see, when, when people come to me and they say, we're leaving the church because of theology, which, which many times is, is okay. They have a different understanding. They're a well-informed, biblical, godly understanding of Scripture. They say, you know, we have to leave the church because of our theology. Where my heart goes is not good because even though Jesus is prominent in my life, it is a constant fight to make him preeminent. 
Even though Jesus is prominent in my heart, many times I make other people's opinions preeminent in my heart. Many times I make church growth preeminent in my heart. Many times I make worldly fame preeminent in my heart. Many times I make peace preeminent in my heart. And we learn from today's passage that we as a church are not to make anything else preeminent in our heart except Jesus Christ. I have to skip forward here. There are many ways you can talk about in your community group of how we can make Christ preeminent in this church and in our lives. But what we see is this, because Jesus is the fullness of God in the flesh, because Jesus created the church, because he is the firstborn from the church, because he sustains the church, because of these things, we must make Christ preeminent in our church. I started with two questions. The first was this, what is your view of the church? The second was, are you willing to conform your view of the church to Jesus' view of the church? I watched a documentary on PBS several years ago. Maybe you have seen it. And I I remember the the bulk of the story. The details are a little bit fuzzy. But the the story was a documentary that um, followed around several people. One of the stories, uh, they followed around a guy, we'll call him Joe. I don't even know his name. And Joe owned a, uh, a shop near the Mediterranean Sea. And he, and he ran this shop with his wife and with his best friend. Well, supplies were getting low in this shop. And so uh, Joe decided to stay behind and run the shop. And his wife and best friend set sail across the Mediterranean Sea to another part um, of, of the area to go and buy supplies. Well, days went by and they hadn't returned. And so Joe got very worried. He didn't know what was going on. Finally, Joe found out that his best friend sold his wife into the sex trafficking system. Joe was furious, as you could imagine. And so Joe shut down the shop, and he went to go find his wife. And he searched for her wherever he could. He finally found out that she had been sold to this pimp that was, that was extremely powerful He went to the police to tell them they did nothing about it because they were afraid of this man. Joe sold most of his belongings and and pleaded with this man to sell him back his wife. And the man refused to do it. And yet over months, he went back time and time again, pleading that he could have back his bride. He never stopped pursuing her, never stopped loving her. And finally, his persistence paid off and she was sold back to him. He brought her home, and as he brought her home, he found out that things had changed, that she was a damaged woman, that his bride was not who she used to be. She was damaged mentally. She was damaged emotionally. She was damaged psychologically. She was even damaged physically as her body was infested with tons of diseases. She was not the woman he envisioned on their wedding day, and yet Joe still cherished his bride. And he loved her till she died. You know, the story of the church is not much different than that story right there. The big difference, of course, is that this woman's disease and her deformity and her her ugliness and everything hurtful that happened to her was done because of the sin of another. But for us, our grotesqueness comes because of self-inflicted wounds, because of our own sin. And yet Jesus is a persistent, unrelenting Savior. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. I'm sorry, I know I've gone long, but let me just say this. I know some of you have been very hurt by your past church experience. I know some of you have been hurt here. And I know you're probably thinking, Pastor Dan, you don't know the junk I went through. You don't know the selfishness and the greed that we saw. And you know what? You're right. I don't know. But Jesus does. And he doesn't know it in part. He knows it in full. He's not ignorant of the blemishes on his bride. And yet, he still loves her. We ask the question, why should I not give up on the church? And the reason is because Jesus hasn't given up on his church. Jesus hasn't given up on you. You are not only a member of a messy church, you are the part of the church that makes the church messy. My guess is, If you're here today, you probably don't hate the bride of Christ, but maybe you are indifferent towards the bride of Christ. Maybe you are distant from the bride of Christ. Maybe you let people talk poorly about the bride of Christ. Love the church as Christ loved the church. Love this church with all of its warts or whatever church God calls you to. Even with all of her warts and all of her shortcomings, cherish her, lay down your life for her, devote yourself to her. Because Jesus loves her, even when she's unlovely. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you as the church, and in and of ourselves, we are covered with stain. And yet by the blood of Christ, we have been washed clean. Thank you that you have never stopped pursuing us, never stopped loving us, and never stopped cherishing us. God, give us a perspective on the church that is your perspective on the church. May we love her, and cherish her, even when she is unlovely. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.